Have you ever noticed something that you didn't notice before until someone had called your attention to its presence? It's like you just didn't notice a thing, but then when people called your attention to that thing, you started noticing that thing everywhere, so to speak. That happened to me some years ago when somebody had said that if you go to New York City, it's like you could go to one Starbucks and throw a stone and reach another Starbucks. Like that's how many there are in New York City. And it's hyperbole, because I've, t- I've taken notice of that, to actually see when I'm at a Starbucks in times past, especially if I could throw a stone and reach said other Starbucks. But there are a lot of them. I read that there were around 350 in New York City as of 2021. Well, when somebody had made that comment to me, I started feeling like I started noticing them everywhere. I felt like a tourist every time I went to New York City. Like, what, there's one, and then right over there, there's another. And just started noticing it. Now, the reason why I mention that to you is not to make you start thinking about coffee. You know, that sounds good. I would like that right now. And not even Starbucks coffee. I think you're better off with organic coffee, maybe grown at a higher altitude so there's more antioxidants in it, something that's better for your budget. Maybe you can make it at home and save some money that way. I call your attention to that because I think it could be like that when Christians have another Christian call attention to the way in which Jesus can be seen in the Old Testament. And if you're a new Christian and you never heard that before and somebody says, you can see Jesus so often in the Old Testament, when you start reading through the Old Testament, you could feel like you're seeing Him everywhere. In some cases, you're seeing Him via prophecy. In other cases, you're seeing Him by way of prefigurement. Now, to be sure, people can be so passionate for Christ that they could see Him in places where they just need to be seeing what the text is actually saying. Because then rather than do an actual exposition of the text, they're doing more imposition upon the text and imposing Jesus in a text where he isn't necessarily to be seen in the same way he is via prophecies, types, and shadows, and prefigurements. But to be sure, when you go through the Old Testament, it is amazing to see how many ways in which Jesus is either prophesied or prefigured in the Old Testament. So there are many prophecies, but I'm going to call your attention to a few prefigurements as we make our way into Psalm 18, because I do think we have some prefigurements in the text that is before us. So a prefigurement would be seeing Christ exemplified or typified in somebody in the Old Testament context. Say, for instance, Adam. Adam, per Romans chapter 5, verse 14, was a type or a pattern of he who was to come. Well, you say, in what way was Adam a pattern of Christ? Well, Adam was the federal head of natural humanity. And via Adam's disobedience, sin was imputed to his posterity. Therefore, we all bear the inherent guilt of, say, for example, a sin nature. It was imputed to us via our federal head, Adam. Well, in like manner, Jesus is the federal head of a new humanity, a chosen generation, or better rendered, a chosen race, comprised of people from every tribe, kindred, and tongue, and Jesus' very righteousness is imputed to us. So Adam was a pattern of he who was to come, the Lord Jesus Christ. You could make the case very clearly that Jesus was prefigured in Isaac. That even as Abraham the father was to offer up his son on Mount Moriah, but yet did not do it because his hand was stayed by the angel of Yahweh, it prefigured Christ because the father did offer his son. And you can look at Hebrews chapter 11 verses 17 through 19 to kind of work that out further. Jesus was prefigured in the offerings of the Old Testament, most explicitly the Passover lamb, but even in the ceremonial offerings that were sacrifices for sin, because they all pointed to the one sacrifice that could actually take away sin. And Paul, we remember in his letter to the Corinthians, called Jesus our Passover. You could see plenty of other examples of the prefigurement of Christ in the Old Testament. Jacob's ladder. You can compare Genesis 28, verse 12, with what Jesus says in John chapter 1, verse 51. The serpent that was raised in the wilderness to which the people looked and were healed. Remember John chapter 3, verse 14 says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now, Kizildek was a prefigurement of Christ. Very uniquely, mysteriously, he shows up in the Old Testament, Genesis 14, only mentioned a few times in the Old Testament, but he was a prefigurement of Christ, I would argue, because he was both a king and a priest. And the examples could go on. Some are explicitly tied to New Testament texts. Some, you have to make 
educated hypotheses when you could tie other texts around it to build the case. And there are plenty of other examples, I think, that could be listed. You could argue that um, the ark that Noah built prefigured Christ in some way. When you look at some of the components of the tabernacle, Christ being prefigured in that. Elisha, interestingly, a prefigurement, you could argue, of Christ. If John the Baptist was a kind of outworking of the ministry of Elijah, and Elijah was a kind of prefigurement of John the Baptist, you can make the case, and it's amazing when you see the parallels, that Elisha was a prefigurement of Christ, at least in some ways, and the examples could go on. But one of the ways in which Christ was prefigured was in the reign of the king. He is, after all, the king of kings. Now, while it's true that when you look in the Old Testament, the people's desire, and I'm talking about the nation of Israel, their desire for a king was an act of rebellion against God. At least that's how God saw it in 1 Samuel 8. The people wanted a king like the nations, and God saw it as a rejection of himself. But God knew this was going to happen. That's why when you go back to Deuteronomy 17, 14, he gave principles and commands that would govern the governor, i.e. the king. And you see the outworking of that in the verses that follow, verses 15 through 20 of Deuteronomy 17. Because God's ultimate form of government, the ideal form of government, is found in the monarchy in which his son is the monarch. That's the ideal form of government. Our form of government, as established by our founders, provides an excellent series of checks and balances for the preservation of human freedom amidst the depravity that exists among governors and governed alike. But when Jesus returns, there's no need for a constitutional republic. There will be no room for opposition because his reign will be perfectly righteous and he is unstoppable. But now, I do like the form of government, the constitutional republic, when it works the way it's supposed to work, because it's supposed to put checks and balances on the depravity of man, but the kingship itself is meant to represent that dominion that exists ultimately in God's sovereignty and to be worked out through his son, being the federal head of his new people, his humanity reestablished in Christ. Now, with that being said, as we approach the conclusion of this psalm, we're going to see, I think, some prefigurements of Christ. Now, we'll see it when we get there, but first, by way of a quick reminder as to where we have been. It's been an amazing journey through this psalm. You go back to the beginning of the psalm, and we've seen things like the believer's relationship and the personal nature of the believer's relationship with his God via the ascriptions that David has for his God. All those personal pronouns that are used there we see in verse 1 and the beginning of verse 2. We've seen the amazing way in which God hears and responds to the prayers of his people. Don't forget that. Just because we're moving on from this psalm, don't forget what you've seen in Psalm 18. That David cried out and it was like the heavens were open and God swooped in and rescued him. Do not forget that. Continue to let that fan the flame of your prayer life. We've seen that. We've seen... um, the often overlooked connection between a righteous walk and the deliverance often wrought by the righteous God. We see that in verses 20 through 24. We saw that God will often, though not always, and necessarily and exclusively, deal with an individual in relationship to how that individual has dealt with others. We saw that in verses 25 and 26. We've seen also how God is the one true God, how he is the God who empowers his people, how he is the invincible God who extends his kingdom through his anointed. That's where we were in our last study of Psalm 18. And we're going to pick up with that theme, how God is the invincible God who extends his kingdom through his anointed. And with that being said, we begin in Psalm 18, verse 41, where we read, They cried out, but there was none to save. Even to the Lord or to Yahweh, but he did not answer them. So you look at the beginning of verse 41. They cried out. Who are they? Well, they are David's enemies. We're not sure exactly. They could be enemies, both foreign and domestic. David had both, as we're going to see as we walk through the verses that are before us. But they cried out. But I want you to note, if you were to go back to the beginning of this psalm, namely verse 6, they didn't cry out like David cried out. Oh yes, they cried out, but they didn't cry out like David cried out. 
Now, God can use judgments as a means to awaken people. We see that biblically. You can look at Isaiah chapter 17, verses 7 and 8 as an example of that. We can see how God could use hardship to awaken people to himself. Paradigms of that, I think, could be found in Psalm 107, examples of that. But this case is not that. This does not appear to be that case. If David's talking about foreign adversaries here, then they basically went through the proverbial Rolodex of gods, calling upon their god, maybe calling upon some other regional gods that they know, maybe going through the pantheon of their gods, and they made their way to Yahweh at some point, and they tried him, they gave him a try as well. They said, what else do I have to lose? Let me call upon Yahweh, and he did not answer them. Now, if this were Israelites that were doing this, And we'll talk more about that because there was a civil war that raged in Israel for quite a while after David became king. We're going to see that in 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1. If these were Israelites who were calling out to Yahweh, then the idea is that they had for so long despised the commands of Yahweh. They had despised Yahweh's anointed. They had distressed the afflicted as we've seen so many times in this psalm and in other psalms. And now all of a sudden they are distressed and they're crying out to Yahweh and it is hypocritical and it's an illegitimate cry. It was not a cry that came from the soil of repentance and faith. It was essentially the kind of cry that was like a cry to like, hey God, have mercy on me so that I might live and continue to do whatever it is that I want to do. I just want you to extend my life so that I can continue to do what I want to do. Now as far as David's enemies were concerned, this evidence that A, God was not for them. Because for a while, it probably looked like God was for them. They were successful. They were winning. David was, say, on the run. If this was during the days of David's flight from Saul, for instance. If this was during the days, you you could look in different examples in the text where David's life looked like it was on the line. They might look like they were winning. But this evidence that God was not for them, even though their prior and temporary success might have made them think otherwise. And I think it's a reminder, when you look at the beginning of this verse, they cried out and there was none to save. I think it's a good reminder that their cries were not in truth. They were without the design of repentance and faith that is associated with legitimate cries to God. Remember, Psalm 145 verse 17 says that God is near, or Yahweh is near, to all who call upon Him. To all who call upon Him in truth. It's as though the next part of that verse qualifies what was previously said. Because you might look at this and say, they cried out to him. Doesn't the scripture say, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved? Well, these people called out to him and they weren't saved. So isn't that a contradiction? No, the scripture interprets scripture. God is near to all who call upon him. To all who call upon him in truth. And these individuals did not do that. Now, if this was, I think it's a good reminder of a couple other things. If you had... Foreign nations at this point, say the Philistines, for instance, and you had some Philistines saying, we're losing the battle and we're just going to cry out to, to Yahweh at that point. And presuming in that, in that case, possibly they cried out to their God and other gods and then they made their way to Yahweh. It's a good reminder that God does not esteem cries to other gods as legitimate. God does not believe that everyone is crying out to the same God using different names. So no matter what you know, somebody else tells you, like, hey, we're all worshiping the same God. We just use different names. God doesn't think so. And treating the one true God as though he was one option among many is a recipe to bring about the result that we see in this text that he will not answer. He is not to be treated as one God among many. He is the one true God, and he is to be recognized as that. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, if these were Israelites, it's a good reminder that to walk in hypocrisy and rebellion against God and then to just cry out to God in a moment of need and desperation could very well be seen by God as hypocritical and illegitimate because he sees past the need of the moment and down to the heart. And if the need for him is not perceived, but just for deliverance, don't be surprised if he esteems that to be a prayer he doesn't answer. He may in his grace. Temporarily provide, temporarily provide temporal deliverance. But that too is a kind of prayer that we shouldn't expect to be answered, a hypocritical one. That's not connected to true repentance and true faith. And David goes on here, and in verse 42 he says, Then I beat them as fine as the dust before the wind. I cast them out like dirt 
in the streets. You know, I could imagine, so I'm just speaking generally, and this wouldn't necessarily be, you know, um, you know, every person, um, but I could imagine a lot of people saying, why in the world are you preaching on that kind of verse in a Sunday morning context? Like, don't say that. I beat them as fine as the dust before the wind. I cast them out like dirt in the streets. The people don't need to hear you preach that. They could read that on their own. (laughs) Well, it's in Psalm 18, and there's so many amazing things in Psalm 18, and this is the Word of God, and it too is amazing. And when you see uh, how this verse, I think, is connected with a prefigurement of Christ, perhaps there'll be appreciation for the exposition of texts like this one, perhaps more so than there was even before. But let's get to what David's actually saying here. He is using a couple of images to communicate the destruction, the complete defeat of his enemies. The first comes in the first line of 42, uh, verse 42. I beat them as fine as the dust before the wind. That expression is used a few times in the scriptures. So you think about just as chaff, is close to weightless, and it's easily dispersed by the wind. We see that kind of imagery in, say, Psalm 1, for instance, verse 4. The ungodly are like the chaff. We see it also in Psalm 35. Uh, So David's enemies were. They were beaten as fine as dust, as it were, so as to be easily scattered by the wind. And what does this speak to? Well, clearly, it speaks to the degree of David's victory. It's as though his enemies were, as it were, pulverized. And they were easily scattered and driven by the wind. And you have the next line, verse 42. uh, Second line says, I cast them out like dirt in the streets. So you can just imagine, especially in the ancient world, though in part of the world today, you can imagine people just sweeping their homes, sweeping dust and dirt out of their houses, and then that dirt being dispersed into the streets. And it's kind of the imagery that you see here. I think John Kiddo, who is one of the writers um, quoted in Spurgeon's Treasury of David, got to another aspect of this when he said, To cast forth anyone, therefore, as the dirt of the streets, is a strong image of contempt and rejection. I think that's also what's meant to be connoted here as well. Now, remember, this, this psalm, Psalm 18, has a parallel version of it in 2 Samuel 22. Now, if we were to look at 2 Samuel 22, we'd see something similar, though a little bit different. There, David writes, I pounded and trampled them like mud in the streets. And you might say, okay, well, what does it mean that he pounded them and trampled them like mud in the streets? Well, it appears to speak to the way in which the enemies were scattered, like mud in the streets, that they were essentially disorganized, disheveled, defeated, And again, like in the second line of Psalm 18, verse 42, it speaks to the sense of contempt connoted there as well. Now, I think it would be wrong, and I think it would be highly presumptuous for anyone to think this language is way too strong to be approved of by God. You don't go there. You still think, that's kind of strong language. I mean, if somebody were to say that, it would suggest that somebody's reading verse 42 while forgetting what verse 40 said. And I know it's been a while since we've been in verse 40, but just look back to verse 40. In verse 40, we read that David said, You have also made my enemies turn their backs to me, and I destroyed those who hated me. Right? So, so it's, it's the kind of language that we've seen already here. But also, when you look through the Scriptures, it's the kind of language to, that God uses to speak of how He deals and will deal with His enemies. Through Isaiah, God prophesied forthcoming judgment, saying, Be shattered, O you peoples, and be broken in pieces. Give ear, all you from far countries. Gird yourselves, but be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves, but be broken in pieces. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 9. And again, similar kind of idea. Isaiah chapter 17, verse 13. The nations will rush like the rushing of many waters. But God will rebuke them and they will flee far away and be chased like the chaff of the mountains before the wind. See the connection with our text? Last line of Psalm uh, Isaiah 17, 13. Like a rolling thing before the wind. That's the kind of language that we see here in Psalm 18, 42. Then I beat them as fine as the dust before the wind. And it's also a reminder of what God will do through His Son in the last days. In Daniel chapter 2, the second chapter of the book of Daniel, one of my favorite chapters of Scripture, 
among so many other chapters of Scripture. God revealed to Daniel both the dream of Nebuchadnezzar and the interpretation of the dream. Remember that? Nebuchadnezzar had this dream and he wanted his astrologers and soothsayers and all the wise men of Babylon to not only give him the interpretation of the dream, he wanted them to tell him the dream. And then they're like, nobody could do this except the gods and they do not live among men. And he's like, you're saying this to buy time. And he basically sent out an execution team to start executing the astrologers and the wise men of Babylon. Daniel has one of his men come to him and he asks for a little time because he knew that there was a God in heaven who is the solver of mysteries. So he goes to God in prayer and God reveals to him not only the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, but Nebuchadnezzar's dream itself. So he gets brought before Nebuchadnezzar and he communicates to the Babylonian king the dream and the interpretation. He told him the dream. Nebuchadnezzar had dreamed of a great image whose splendor was excellence and whose form was awesome. Daniel chapter 2 verse 31. And as noted in the book of Daniel, reading from verse 32 of chapter 2, the, image, the image's head was of fine gold, which represented Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. Its chest and arms of silver, that represented the Medo-Persian Empire. Its belly and thighs of bronze represented the Greek Empire. And then beginning of verse 33, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay representing the Roman Empire, and arguably, I would argue, a final yet fragile kingdom. And as to the end of these earthly kingdoms, Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar this, beginning at verse 34, reading through verse 35. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now first thing I want you to note, just thinking about those verses that we just read, Note where the stone struck the image. He struck the image in the feet, on its feet of iron and clay. Daniel chapter 2, verse 34. The striking of that final kingdom brought down the whole edifice of man. You might say in the day of the Lord, when the sun returns, the day of man is over. The whole edifice comes down once and for all because the Son of God is there. The kingdom doesn't wear away. You look at Daniel 2, it doesn't wear away. It's like, oh, it just kind of, you know, atrophies over time and just kind of wears away. No, it's destroyed with a striking in that moment. It's done away with on that day. The second thing I want you to notice is I want you to notice the thorough nature of the destruction per the imagery. And that ties right in with Psalm 18:42. You probably already heard the parallel already. So even as David said that he beat his enemies as fine as dust before the wind, it's the kind of language that's used here in Daniel chapter 2. That when the stone strikes the image, they were crushed. They became like chaff from the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away so that no trace of them was to be found. There weren't leftover fragments that were so heavy that the wind couldn't carry them away. The defeat was so thorough, it was just decimated. Third thing I want you just to note from that is that this stone became a great mountain and filled the whole earth, which speaks to the unstoppable swelling and universality of the coming kingdom. The kingdom is advancing now, spiritually. But the kingdom is on its way to be manifested visibly. In that moment when, if you will, heaven invades earth, and the sun returns with his thousands upon thousands to execute judgment. The increase of Christ's government and peace continues, and it knows no end. And one day the kingdom of heaven where our citizenship, citizenship is will come to earth and per Revelation 11.5 the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ and He shall reign forever and ever. Why is that important for you just to know in your mind? Just as a quick pastoral application. I'd say if you look at Psalm 73 and you see what happened to Asaph when he looked at the prosperity of the ungodly. He was troubled. He said his foot almost slipped because he saw the ungodly prospering. 
But all that changed when he came into the sanctuary and he understood their end. Their end. Well, I think in the New Testament Christian, that should work compassion so that you might pray for those who are outside of Christ, that you might love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, but that you might know that God will not allow the kingdom of man to reign forever, as it were. But there is an end to it that's coming. There is an end to it that's coming. And for Asaph, it made a big difference in his life. And for you, that may make a big difference in your life. Because if you are just enthralled and tied to and just distressed by the advancements of the ungodly in our day or in the days to come, you are missing blessed promises of the Scripture that it's only temporary. It has an expiration date. And God has described what that expiration date looks like. You get a prefigurement of it, I would argue, in Psalm 18, verse 42. It's a prefigurement of that. Why? Because the language is so, is so similar between what David's describing here and what Christ will do when his kingdom comes, as described in Daniel 2. Verse 43, David continued writing, You have delivered me from the strivings of the people. You have made me the head of the nations. A people I have not known shall serve me. Now, interestingly, when you compare this verse here, especially the first line, with the parallel psalm in 2 Samuel, it doesn't read the same way it reads here. Here you have, you have delivered me from the strivings of the people, whereas in 2 Samuel it says, you have delivered me from the strivings of my people. You see that in 2 Samuel 22, verse 44. Well, in the latter example from 2 Samuel, it sounds like David is speaking of, say, the civil war that raged in the days of Ishbosheth. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1 reads, Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. That's post Saul's death. So after Saul died, and the people of Judah anointed David to be king, remember David was anointed king three times. He was anointed by Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, I believe it was verse 13. That's when the Holy Spirit came upon him, and per the text would be on him from that day forward. But then he was anointed later on by the people of Judah. And then he was anointed eventually when the kingdom was unified by the people of Israel. But before the kingdom was unified, there was a civil war that raged. A civil war. Abner propped up Ishbosheth, who was basically a puppet king. And that was a civil war that raged. But David was delivered from the strivings of his people. So maybe speaking of that. I would think it is, for instance, in 2 Samuel 22. Or it could speak of how David was delivered, to use language from the commentator Benson, from the invasions of the Philistines who attacked him soon after his accession to the throne. David was delivered from both enemies, foreign and domestic. You look at the second line of verse 43. You have made me the head of the nations. And indeed, that was the case. If you wanted to prove out that line by going to 2 Samuel you'd go to 2 Samuel 8. 2 Samuel 8 just kind of illustrates this point over and over again. In 2 Samuel 8, it says that David subdued the Philistines, verse 1. He defeated Moab, who became David's servants and brought him tribute, that's verse 2. He defeated Hadadezer, recovering territory at the river Euphrates, verse 3. He put garrisons in Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians became his servants and brought him tribute, verse 6. He also put garrisons in Edom, and the Edomites became his servants as well, verse 13. And more detail can be given in 2 Samuel 8, as well as in 1 Kings 4, uh, 21 and 24, when you see the expansion of the, the kingdom that Solomon basically inherited. So he was made the head of the nations. And then you have that last line, a people I have not known shall serve me. A quick note on the text, is, is the future tense valid here? In the Septuagint, it is a future tense, which would suggest that David is anticipating a further expansion of the kingdom in light of previous successes. Or, as you'll note in other translations, a past tense is used. So David might be seeing and recalling what God has already done, that a people that he has not known has already come to serve him. In either event, David is anticipating and or rejoicing in God's advancement of the kingdom through him. Look what he goes on to say in verse 44. As soon as they hear of me, the foreigners submit to me. And he got an example of this in 2 Samuel as well. In 2 Samuel chapter 8, verses 9 and 10, we're told that Toy, the king of Hamath, 
heard that David had defeated all the army of Hadadezer, and he sent his son Joram with articles of silver and gold and bronze to David. The idea is he voluntarily submitted himself to David, identifying himself as David's vassal. So when you look at this line, as soon as they hear of me, they obey me, the foreigners submit to me. You go to 2 Samuel 8, you have an example. This foreigner hears of David's conquest and he tells his son, get over there, bring this guy some silver and gold, we'll be his vassal. He can rule over us, we'll be kind of like under his kingdom. Now I do think that we should appreciate how this text would have spiritual application to David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that sense, I think you could argue a prefigurement. See, the Gentiles, they heard of David's military victories, and they're like, all right, we've got to submit to this guy. At least Toy did. He heard about David's victories, and he's like, we've got to submit to this guy. And when foreigners hear of Christ over and over again, and say, for instance, the book of Acts, by the grace of God, what do they do over and over again? They submit to him. They believe the gospel and submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And over and over again in the book of Acts, we see the fulfillment of the word spoken in Acts 28.28. The salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will hear it. So you have all these examples. You go through the book of Acts, you see Paul preaching in Antioch of Pisidia. Great example. If you want to do this later on, just read through Acts 13. Paul is preaching. He preached Jesus as Savior, Acts 13.24. He preached Jesus as the one who died in fulfillment of the scriptures that were written about him. Acts 13, verses 28 and 29. He preached how Jesus rose from the dead in fulfillment of the scriptures, verses 30 through 35. He preached that Jesus was the one through whom is preached the forgiveness of sins. You see that in verses 38 and 39. And then we're told a little bit later on this. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Acts 13.48 But the examples could go on. You could look in Acts 18, I believe it's verse 8. When the Corinthians hear the gospel, not all of them, but some of them believe. They hear of Christ, and by the grace of God, they submit to the gospel. They believe the gospel, and they submit to the lordship of Christ. The Thessalonians, Paul said that they, when, they, when they heard the word of God that was preached through him, they received it not as, it were, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, and they submitted to the lordship of Christ. The Bereans, when they heard about the preaching of the gospel, they submitted to the lordship of Christ. Acts 17, verse 11. And unlike those who submitted to David's lordship, who would bow the knee to David's kingship, those who submit to the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ and believe the gospel do so willingly and joyfully. His people are made willing in the day of His power to borrow some language from Psalm 110 verse 3. They willingly submit. Yes, like those who bowed to David, they recognized that there was an implied ultimatum You know, when the gospel is preached, you know that. There's an implied ultimatum. Receive Christ and bow the knee. And then with that comes the the reality of or else. Right? God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. But the other side of not receiving Christ is not a good one. But it's important to remember, unlike those who bowed to David, the ones who bowed the knee to Jesus see not only unstoppable power, so to speak, as they did in the case of David, a kingdom advancing, but they see unparalleled love. Unparalleled love. Foreigners all over the world, Gentiles all over the world, including us in this room, have heard of Christ, at least many of us, have heard of Christ, and by the grace of God, although we are Gentiles, at least many of us, we have obeyed the Gospel and looked to Him alone for forgiveness and have submitted to His Lordship. I think you can make a case that Christ is prefigured in verse 44 of Psalm 18. Look at verse 45. Back to Psalm 18. David writes, The foreigners fade away and come frightened from their hideouts. So the phrase foreigners, literally the sons of the stranger, it paints a picture of them withering in strength and courage. So it says the foreigners fade away. You're picturing now them just being scared, fearful, and they come out of their hideouts. They come frightened from their hideouts. It's not a flattering image. It's used in the Old Testament with respect to like flowers and leaves withering and fading away. In the New Testament, this kind of imagery is used to describe apostate false teachers. These are like late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. 
to use language from Jude, verse 12. And the idea here is that you have enemies of David coming out of places that they perceive to provide them protection. They came out of their hideouts. We thought we had protection, but we know we're not going to win against this advancing kingdom under the headship of God's anointed. Therefore, we're coming out of our hideouts and we're submitting to the king and the nation. And I think this would well depict a prefigurement of what happens to many when they come to the Lord Jesus Christ. I think to liken that to the kingdom of the Messiah, the pulpit commentary puts it well. The kingdom of the Redeemer at once attracts and alarms. You see, these individuals were coming out of their hideouts because they knew they were in trouble, so they sought the ambivalence of the king. And if you're going to come to the Lord Jesus Christ, you have to know that if you do not come to the Lord Jesus Christ, you are in a place of serious trouble. I'd be lying to you if I did not tell you that. If you hear the words of Christ, they are very clear. In the Old Testament, we're told that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of wisdom. And Jesus Himself said, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear Him who after He has killed has the power to cast into hell. Yes, I say, to fear Him. Luke chapter 12, verse 5. How fearful it is to imagine Christ telling you, imagine this, Christ telling you, depart from Me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25, verse 41. How fearful to imagine imagine being in a state like the rich man in Luke 16 who said that, I am tormented in this flame. Luke 16, verse 24. How fearful to enter the place in which Jesus said, the fire is not quenched. If the nations came trembling out of their hideouts in light of the advancement of David's kingdom, how much more should people come trembling from their false sense of security to David's greater Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm just telling you the truth. If you do not know Christ, if you do not know that your sins are forgiven, fear would be a right emotion for you. Anybody who tells you otherwise is lying to you. Jesus Himself called you to such a fear. There should be one fear that dominates all other fears. A fear of God which dominates fear of man and any other fear. But in coming to Christ, you should not only come with a sense of fear. It would be a right emotion. It's the beginning of wisdom. But it shouldn't be the only emotion. Appreciation and love should follow shortly thereafter. Because the one to whom you come is the one who bore the wrath of God on your behalf so that you would not have to bear the wrath of God. But fear would be a right emotion, but it should be followed shortly by appreciation and joy. Appreciation and joy. Well, I want to call your attention to this closing section of praise as we conclude this psalm. A few thoughts on these closing verses. Verses 46 through 50 are basically a kind of closing section of praise. I will give you some thoughts briefly as it relates to them, and we will conclude our study of Psalm 18. Verse 46 The Lord or Yahweh lives. Blessed be my rock. Let the God of my salvation be exalted. So David is now rejoicing. He's coming to the end of his psalm and he's saying, Yahweh lives. He's alive. As opposed to false gods who cannot intervene and cannot help, Yahweh is alive and he has intervened on my behalf. That's how this kind of language is used. Because when David says here, Yahweh lives, you might say, yeah, obviously he lives. He's the ever-living God. Of course he lives. But that kind of language is used to speak of God intervening, His reality being manifested in space and time, as it were. You look at Joshua chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. Joshua told the children of Israel that they would know that the living God was among them when the soles of the feet of the priest who bore the Ark of the Covenant, when their feet touched the waters of the Jordan or rested in the waters of the Jordan, the waters upstream would stand in a heap. And I just want to say briefly, how many witnesses that God has left in history that He is the living God? The Bible is replete with them. A parted Red Sea, the Jordan standing up as a heap, 
a widow's oil supernaturally being increased, Elijah being Elijah taken up into heaven in a chariot, the Jordan divided by Elisha's mantle, Naaman cured of leprosy, an axe head being made to float, a person raised to life via an encounter with Elisha's bones, Daniel's friends preserved in the fire, Daniel preserved in the lion den, in the lion's den, the continuance of the nation of Israel, its reestablishment, the miracles of Jesus of which there are so many, turning water into wine, multiplying fish and loaves, casting out demons, stilling the storm, raising people to life, the resurrection of Christ from the dead, the miracles of the apostles. Pagan gods cannot do this because they're not the living God. Yahweh lives. So when David is saying Yahweh lives, he's saying, look, he's done this intervention in time. He saved me. And you as a New Testament Christian, having access to the Old Testament, New Testament Bible, you should be able to say, Yahweh lives. Look at all that he's done. I just gave you a little sampling. And try to list all the interventions as listed in the scriptures. And just know that we wouldn't even come close per what John writes towards the end of his gospel. That all the books in the world, the earth couldn't hold all the books that would be written to contain everything that Christ did. Because he lives and because he intervenes, he is to be praised. Second line of verse 46. Blessed be my rock. Let the God of my salvation be exalted. The proclamation rings of joy. God was to be praised. Verse 47, It is God who avenges me and subdues the peoples under me. So quick note here. It's a reminder of Deuteronomy 32, verse 35. Vengeance belongs to Yahweh. You are not to take vengeance into your own hands. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. David saw this. It is God who avenges me. He saw this so often in his life. He saw it as related to Saul. David told Saul, 1 Samuel 24.12, Let the Lord judge between you and me, and let the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. David also saw God's vengeance apart from the use of people. When Nabal died, David said, well, I'll read from the, uh, chapter 25, verse 39 of 1 Samuel, So when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept his servant from evil. For the Lord has returned the wickedness of Nabal on his own head. And David saw God's vengeance through him. He said it's God who subdues the nations under him. Quick note, quick theology primer on vengeance. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. It's not the believer's prerogative to execute vengeance. But God executes vengeance in His time and in His way. He could use opposing enemy nations. He could use His sovereign providence. In the Old Testament, He used the nation of Israel, for instance, and other nations. He used the provision in the Old Testament, the avenger of blood provision. In our current days, He still uses government when it's functioning rightly to punish evil. Romans 13, verse 4. And one day will come the day in which the vengeance of our God is actually realized in space and time. I won't go into it in extended detail at all. I'm just going to make mention of it. Interestingly, when Jesus preached in Luke chapter 4 in Nazareth, remember, He's walking through what is being fulfilled in their hearing that day. Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me. And then He ends at the line where He says, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. But He doesn't read the line that comes after and the day of vengeance of our God. You might say that right now we're living in that year. The year of the Lord's favor where the gospel is being proclaimed. But there's coming a moment when the year will give way to the day. The day of the vengeance of our God. When God avenges iniquity and sets things right. Verse 38, He delivers me from my enemies. And we know that's both foreign and domestic as we've already seen. You lift me up above those who rise against me. The idea is being lifted out of reach from His enemies. You have delivered me from the violent men. Interestingly, the Hebrew word for violent is Hamas. It's used to describe violence, malice, wrong. Interesting in God's providence that that would be the case. And the leading candidate for the violent man here would be Saul, but David was delivered from other evil men as well. Doeg the Edomite being one that comes to my mind. But it's ultimately true of every believer. Why, the people of God can sing this. You have delivered me from the violent man. Remember in, in, in evil days, quick side note, this is important to note. In 2 Timothy 3, remember that Paul said, 
perilous times will come, right? Speaking of the last days, and ultimately we can see an application of it to the last of the last days. Why will those times be perilous? If you look in 2 Timothy 3, it's because of the kind of people that will populate the earth in the last days. There's a lot in Revelation about what will happen upon the earth. But you look in 2 Timothy 3. Perilous times will come, for men will be... And then the list goes on. Remember how the men were and women were in the days of Noah. The earth was filled with violence. So what makes those last days as difficult and perilous as they will be, will be violent individuals and an increase of violence. But you can sing Psalm 18, verse 48, you have delivered me from the violent man. He'll deliver you temporally until it's time for you to go home and then you're delivered eternally. But you are assured deliverance. Verse 49, Therefore, therefore, in light of that, I will give thanks to you, O Yahweh, among the Gentiles, and sing praises to your name. Now this verse is quoted by Paul in Romans chapter 15, verse 9. It's used by Paul to help Jewish believers receive Gentile believers and that they might you know, kind of reconcile the differences that they have between one another to show God's plan was always to save Gentiles. He always wanted the good news of who He is, His excellencies, His attributes, His kingdom to be proclaimed to Gentiles. So if you were to look in Romans 15, you would see this verse quoted. Yahweh's wonders, Yahweh's deeds were never meant to just stay among the people of Israel. David said that he would give thanks to Yahweh among the Gentiles and sing praises to His name. I love how Paul quoted it there. Paul quoted from 2 Samuel uh, 22.50, Psalm 18.49. Remember the Psalms are parallel. Then he quotes from Deuteronomy 32.43, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. Then he quotes from Psalm 117, verse 1, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud Him, all you peoples. Then he quotes from Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. In him the Gentiles shall hope. So he quotes from the law, he quotes from the prophets, he quotes from the Psalms to show thoroughly this has always been God's plan. You've got to love how Paul made a case. Quotes from all these books. And so Jewish believers especially would be like, okay, you can't argue with that. I mean, it's throughout the writings of sacred scripture that God's plan has been for Gentiles to be a part of the kingdom of God. Think of this. How amazing is it to think how many Gentiles have actually read this praise of David throughout the centuries? Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles. Think of how that's been fulfilled. Gentiles all over the world have read that. And think how many non-Jews are still yet to read that. His praise, David's praise of the living God, still being published and proclaimed. And the final verse of this amazing psalm, Psalm 18, verse 50. Great deliverance He gives to His King, and shows mercy to his anointed, to David and his descendants forevermore. A few notes here. Word deliverance in the first line of verse 50. You might want to put an S at the end of it. Great deliverances. Speaking of the way he perpetually and continually delivered David. Great deliverances he gives to his king. And I don't want you to miss the importance of those personal pronouns. It shows you why God granted David the victories that he did. Yes, God delighted in David. We saw that earlier in Psalm 18. But David was Yahweh's chosen vessel. Right? David said, great deliverance he gives to his king and shows mercy to his anointed. And Christ is prefigured in that. Christ is the ultimate anointed. I mean, the name Jesus, uh, the, name, the title Christ means the anointed one. Christos means the anointed one. When David was anointed in, Psalm, in 1 Samuel 16, verse 13, the Holy Spirit came upon him to empower him for the calling of kingship. When, the Holy, when oil was poured upon somebody's head, it was symbolic of the Holy Spirit coming upon somebody for the calling. Kings were to be anointed with oil. As to symbolize that, David had the Holy Spirit come upon him. And we think of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Jordan River. Jesus, the anointed. Remember the Holy Spirit coming upon him in the Jordan. And the Father saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. 
Later on in the Gospel of Matthew, we see, This is my beloved Son, the Father say, Hear ye Him. In whom I am well pleased, hear ye Him. He is the anointed. David didn't uh, (laughs) apply for this position. He didn't lobby for it. He didn't send in a resume and an application. He didn't have the right connections. He was chosen by God. Even as Christ, per Isaiah 42.1, is the elect servant, the chosen one, through whom God would advance His kingdom. Thus, to wage war against David was to wage war against David's God. To resist David's kingship was to resist God. He was appointed as God's king to execute God's judgment and administrate God's kingdom. And in that regard, he is a type and a shadow of the one to whom all authority and in judgment has been entrusted, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Father has entrusted judgment to the Son. God will judge the world through the man whom He has appointed, the Lord Jesus Christ. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus Christ, the Anointed One. And finally, that last line, to David and his descendants forevermore, suggests David's expectation that the government of the kingdom would remain within his family line, and ultimately it would be realized in his greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I conclude with reminding you of what Gabriel told Mary. He will be great, speaking of Jesus, and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Thanks be to God. Well, church, so concludes our study of Psalm 18. What an awesome journey it has been. With that said, let's go to our God in prayer. Father, I thank You for all all that You have taught us in our study of Psalm 18. And thank You, Lord, for, for the reminders that are sometimes difficult to be reminded of, that even as David lived in a world that was dangerous and filled with wickedness, Lord, we know that we do as well. And we know, Heavenly Father, that because of our own wickedness, we deserve Your wrath, but we thank You for Your grace in bringing us to Your Son, the Anointed One, par excellence, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that You would, through this church and through the individuals of this church, that You would continue to advance Your kingdom. Lord, I pray that as the royal priesthood that we might be going out, Lord, and proclaiming the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. We pray that You would advance Your kingdom, Lord. And in the days in which we live, we pray that You would give us increasing measures of assurance of the victory that is secured in Jesus Christ, of the kingdom that is coming, of the stone that has been cut out without human hands and will one day shatter the edifice of man. And one day, the saints will reign with You on the earth. Thank You, Lord, for such blessed and amazing promises. Help us in the here and now to be faithful to our King. And help us, Heavenly Father, to rejoice over and over again in what You have done for us through Him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.